The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about conflict in cities, and we have a fabulous guest. I'm always so thrilled when we have an actual professor from the University of California, Irvine, with us. And today we have Scott Bolins, who is a professor here, and he is the author of this great new book called City and Soul in Divided Societies. And it's fascinating because it actually includes much of his own personal experience in these cities. So we're going to start talking to him. But let me just tell you a little bit about his background Professor Scott Bowens studies ethnicity and urban policy, developmental strategies, and regional and intergovernmental approaches to planning and conflict management in cities. Over the past 15 years, Professor Bowens has interviewed over 220 urban professionals and community advocates in places like Jerusalem, Belfast, Johannesburg, Sarajevo, uh, Mostar Bosnia, Barcelona, and Basque City and other Basque cities about the role of urban policy and city building amidst national, ethnic conflict and political transitions. His books include Cities, Nationalism, and Democratization. That's one of them. Another one on narrow ground. And another one, Urban Peace Building in Divided Cities. And of course, this new one, City and Soul in Divided Cities. Professor Boland's recent book is fascinating, and it happens to focus on historical, theoretical, and practical issues of urban divisions, but also what makes it really unique and not so much of an entirely academic book is that he really talks about it in the first person, and he gives his own first person feelings and accounts of these interviews that he conducted. So he puts forth facts, opinions, photographs, and his own observations in ways that really brings to life what is going on, the challenges of living in and governing polarized and unsettled cities. So it has a lot to teach us even about our own cities and to help us understand really what's going on, for example, in the Middle East. So I am going to just tell you that you can go to his uh, website and learn more about him and also about his books at sociolecology, that's S-O-C-I-A-L-E-C-O-L-O-G-Y dot 
uci.edu, and then you can click on Faculty and Bolins and find out lots more. So thank you so much for joining us, Professor Bolins. We really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure, Mari. Very glad to be with you. So I have this book in my hand, and it's great. It's got a what, what city is this on the front cover? It's it's pretty. You're, you're looking down on the city of Sarajevo in the former Yugoslavia. Wow, it, it looks like a beautiful city, though, really, from this picture. Yes, it yeah. was. Unfortunately, it went through uh, the trauma of urban warfare for four and a half years. Hmm. So, why did you name your book "City and Soul in Divided Societies"? Mari, I've done a lot of writing about troubled cities, and I, in my earlier books, I would always take a scholarly kind of just detached, uh, distance. Uh, perspective on these cities, and I got tired of doing that. Um, I've interviewed some absolutely extraordinary people over the last 17 years, and I wanted to tell their stories, and I also wanted to tell the story of me, how I, a white, middle-aged American, um, experienced these people in these remarkable places. Um, The city, you know, it's a physical place, it's very visible, but underneath that facade, in these troubled cities, um, the soul of people perseveres. And I wanted to, to get inside of their psyche and, and describe where they were coming from, what their feelings were. Um, and and I, I felt that was a much more complete, honest, and open way of portraying these cities rather than the way they're portrayed very often in news as you know, kind of a superficial way, and we don't really get inside of the cities. We don't get inside the people that live there. Right, and what you did is much more genuine and transparent. So could you kind of describe, how did you get these people to talk to you in in the way that they did? Um, I'm an urban planning professor, so I came at it usually using a host institution in each of these places, and I would have an academic who would be my host or hostess, and they would give me uh, the start on at least uh, a short list of people to start to interview. A lot of the interviews were urban professionals, they were politicians, they were community people. And then once I started talking to people, I would always ask them, do you know anybody else I should talk to? And that kind of snowball approach, that word-of-mouth approach, expanded the interview list uh, considerably once I was, once I was on site. Um, it usually was quite thrilling talking to these people, going from one place to another. Um, I would stay in these cities anywhere from uh, a month to one place in Barcelona. I stayed there for an entire year. Mm. Uh, average field research uh, was about three months, I would say. That's one place in Spain I haven't been that I really want to go. You should go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I know, because I, I used to teach high school Spanish many years ago, and so I've been all over Spain, but not Barcelona, so I know. You know, um, in your book, you examine the interaction between urbanism and nationalistic ethnic conflict, you know, kind of like the Basque versus the Spaniards. Um, we often don't even really think about cities when we think about national conflicts over land, religion, and ethnic identity. So why don't you tell us about urbanism and national conflict, and how, how does that really work, and how does that interact? Yeah, you're not alone in that. When people talk about international conflict and ethnic conflict, a lot of times we're looking, uh, people talk about the national state level, and, and the mention of local places and cities and neighborhoods are not mentioned. And what my expectation, my thesis was in this research, was that amidst all this broader conflict, that cities matter greatly, and that 
the policies that are put forth in cities and the spending on urban services and delivery can either worsen relations between ethnic groups or improve them. Um, the, the city is a place of proximity. People live close to each other. On the one hand, that can ignite tension, very, very much so at the urban scale. However, if it's, if it's managed in a responsible way by a legitimate city governance, that, that same proximity of people living close to each other can actually facilitate cooperation between members of different groups, groups that otherwise are in major di- political disagreement um, about issues dealing with land and identity and so forth. So that proximity of, of, of city living, that can either be good news or bad news. And it, it's how it's managed by city uh, politicians, how it's managed and, and coordinated by uh, citizen groups. That's going to make all the difference in the world. So I make the claim, not just in the cities I've studied, but for instance in Iraq right now, the future of Baghdad is very critical to the future stability of that country of Iraq. Mm-hmm. And if you just treat Iraq as a, as a national state or even a, a set of three different uh, ethnic zones, you're missing out on Baghdad as a potential glue that could hold that, that country together. If you just let it be, and Baghdad itself becomes fragmented ethnically and politically, you lose that glue. You lose that center. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of makes me think of like how different New York City was visiting it before 9-11 and after 9-11, and how there was so much more cohesion and cooperation after 9-11. Even, even when I visit now, I think there is a different feeling than there was one years ago when I used to live in New York and we would go into the city. I, I think there is somehow that that whole feeling of cooperation and collaboration that has been since 9-11. I don't know if, if, if you've experienced that because you're much more of a, 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 you know, one who can analyze it better. But just from a feeling like an energy feeling for me, that's what I notice. Yeah, it's interesting. Um you know, you bring up an unfortunate characteristic of cities also. Cities are also targets. Yes. And that's also why cities are important in warfare and, and, and the contemporary forms of terrorism, that cities are targets. Um, when we and, think of Beirut, how gorgeous it used to be, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it was a gorgeous city at, along the Mediterranean, and it turned into a civil war of 15 years mm. uh, based in that city of Beirut. Um, and you go, it's, that war ended in 1990. I just visited there at the end of 2010, 20 years after that war ended, and you still see very clear signs of the war and damaged buildings and destroyed buildings 20 years later. So uh, war can definitely paralyze a city. What you're suggesting in New York, and it very well could be, is, is the flip side of this, the more positive side of cities, a resiliency. And, and what New York City and the residents of that city may be showing in the last 10 years is a resiliency, a coherency that, that we're not going to let that uh, stop the, the viability of this great city. And I do think that the mayor, when you talk about, you know, how how the governmental and agencies and whatever in that city handled it, I think at that time, the mayor seemed to do a good job and he did seem to bring people together. So, you know, that little city really, that big city made a big difference, I think, in the rest of the country. And, you know, I was out of the country in 9-11, but I remember even seeing things when I'm in, you know, uh, Bangkok, (laughs) 
watching this on 9-11 and seeing that my my son was there in New York City. So um, it's just that, you know, as I was looking at your book and reading your book, I I just kept thinking about the big cities that I've lived near or in, you know, near L.A., near Chicago, uh, near New York City, all those places, and and the kind of soul that each of these cities have, Mm -hmm. which which they, they really do. So, you know, when we're talking about Beirut, you know, have they come together now? What is it, 20 years later? 20 years after the Civil War ended. Beirut's a very troubled uh, situation still in Lebanon. It's a very uh, fragile uh, central government, susceptible to collapse. They just went through a a regime change. Mm. And the same root issues that that caused the Civil War in the first place in the mid-1970s Really have not been resolved, hmm. and one of the one of the uh, things that I mention in my research is is one can characterize cities and the countries that they're in by whether they have have fundamentally addressed the root issues of conflict, and the root issues of conflict usually are political disempowerment, issues over land and territory, um, and in some places those have have been frontally addressed, in others not. So in Beirut and Lebanon, the same issues stayed unresolved. A positive example of this is uh, Johannesburg in South Africa, right. where they've made that shift from apartheid to majoritarian democracy, full of problems, full of challenges, but the root issue was addressed. And, and that's how I, I classify across different types of countries and the cities that I study within those countries. And a lot of it has to do with the leadership. Like I remember seeing the movie Invictus, you know, <laughs> and and I keep thinking about the the leadership. If the leadership is really willing to to be a peacemaker, that makes a seems to make a huge difference. Is is that something that you found too? I think so. Uh, if, if every city of every country had a Nelson Mandela, we would we would, <laughs> we would be in heaven. Um, <laughs> Uh, coming out of 27-odd years in, jail, in, in prison and stressing forgiveness. I mean, yes. that, that's a remarkable story. Yes. Um, the, the, in the more, um, uh, you know, the non-Mandela cases, the, the leadership that stresses peace and tolerance is in a difficult situation because it takes a long time to develop peace and understanding of the other in, in ethnic and nationalistic conflict. And very often the extremists, on both sides of the political divide, will assert pressure over time, and sometimes, unfortunately, kill and assassinate those more moderate leaders that are going, trying to work for peace. Right. Um, Isaac Rabin in uh, Israel comes to mind here. It's mm-hmm. a good example of that. It is a very, very tough and, road. And Anwar Sadat, remember? I mean, and Sadat, yeah, yeah, exactly, another good example. It's, yeah. a, it's a long, long road toward peace-building. Uh, there's somebody I cite in the book that says, war is easy, peace takes time. Mm. And it shows how difficult that is. And peace-building can be disrupted by all sorts of uh, political, um, political dynamics and uh, actions by extremists. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and that's, that's, the, that's the sign of real leadership in my mind a leader that can, can stay on that long road toward peace. Uh, you, we probably have examples of that also in Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, and it took a lot of work to build that road. 
how how was it for you in some of these countries that that look at the ugly American? I mean, you were in you know not so much Spain, but you know Sarajevo or um, when you were in some of the Middle Eastern countries. You know what what about that? What kind of experience did you have being in Beirut or you know in Jerusalem? It was, it um, it varied considerably, and it almost always surprised me how people reacted to um, an obvious uh, American. I look very American, um, walking around their streets and so forth. So, in Beirut, um, I, I walk all over these cities. Part I'm an urbanist, so I walk and I take pictures. And a lot of these cities are quite troubled, and they're they're guarded, and there's. There's a lot of machi- there's lots of guns and lots of soldiers and lots of sandbags and I'm just walking along. And in a month that I was in Beirut, I, to my knowledge, no one ever did anything um, uh, evil toward me. Uh, no one said anything bad about me. No one, no one uh, gave me a hard time. And I walked over, all over that city. If I did the same thing in a in a typical major American city, I'm pretty sure I'd be shouted down a few times, <laughs> and I'd be yelled at. So underneath this very difficult political situation in Lebanon and Beirut, there's a tremendous, and it's also a very chaotic city, but underneath all of that, there's a civility that's really amazing. There's a connectiveness between the people that's um, astounding to see. So I was... I was, I was Left alone to do my to do my things and and treated almost like uh, just one of the family one of one of the family in the city. Uh, mm. I was amazed amazed at that. Um, other places um, in Jerusalem, when I went into the West Bank, people would always, you know, ask me what my politics was, and mm-hmm. how I feel about the American administration, and you know, it, it, it's just one long political discussion going on. In did Israel you engage the, that, or did you just say, I'm just a professor here trying to learn? <laughs> I would, How did you I answer? I would normally engage. Um, oh, you would, okay. You know, consistent with my view that I shouldn't be, you know, just this robot right. uh, social scientist, I would, I would try to engage with them as a way to um, uh, further the interview, further right. the discussion, so right. I, could, I could see where they were coming from. They would respond to me, um, and, and it, was, it, was, it was fascinating. So did you ever feel threatened when you were in the West Bank? No. Um, no, no, I was there in 1995, so it's been a while. Okay. I was after the Oslo agreements, and there was some hope yeah, yeah. in the air. I also was in uh, Israel two times since then during the, the two different intifadas. Um, in the, when I was in the West Bank, no, I did not feel threatened. It, it did feel like a sad place. Mm. Um, because it, it, it was not very much in the way of economic development, and the political situation had been very difficult on the people. Um, and also, when I was there subsequently during the two intifadas, uh, it, it was it was a lot of people dispirited on, on both sides, both yes. Palestinians and the left wing uh, Israeli, um, uh, the peace network on the Israeli side, very dispirited mm. about things. So, in your opinion, you know, can urban planning and development actually alleviate the nationalistic and ethnic conflict in all of these hotspots? I mean, give some examples of that. Yeah, 
I don't think urban planning can alleviate the nationalistic conflict, those root issues that I talked about before. Yeah. But what it can do is create a living space. It can, it can, it, it can develop a city environment of greater tolerance and understanding so that those root issues can be then addressed uh, free of the tension of, of, of urban life. Um, so you, you, can, you can work on it on, on, on a micro scale and help people from different ethnic groups deal with each other as neighbors and under, start to understand and tolerate each other. Um, that, could hope, that could potentially build the space that could feed outward and go outward and, and, and help to develop approaches toward dealing with the, the, the deeper root issues. Um, and, you know, one looks at, uh, you know, there was one pe- person I cited that says the promise of cities is that they constitute privileged places for democratic innovation. And I think that's the magic of cities, because in cities, intergroup and ethnic conflict, it takes concrete forms that need pragmatic negotiation. Right. People need to act and cooperate with each other pragmatically over very mundane issues of schools, water, sewer, roads. But that concreteness actually is a benefit because it, it takes it out of the realm of history, national identity, um, all of the large issues that entangle conflict in these places, and it makes it more concrete and hopefully more amenable to pragmatic uh, decisions. So when you're talking about urban planning, you know, um, what do you need to do to actually kind of build these kind of collaborative groups that deal with water or deal with schooling or deal with whatever it is that you're talking about, those mundane, important in mundane but very important aspects of life, how ki- what kinds of urban planning is necessary? Yeah, it's, it includes things like in, any interventions in the urban landscape. So it's urban service delivery, but it's the creation of urban development projects that either divide people or bring them together. So it's, it's how we create, say, a, a major economic development district that borders somewhere in the interface areas between one uh, ethnic-type neighborhood and another. Are we going to build that economic development district with walls? Are we going to build it in a way that it's clearly on one side of the interface and not on the other? Or are we going to build that economic development uh, industrial park, what have you, with routes and roads leading to both sides? so that both sides have access to that, that job site. Are we going to, in any sort of uh, other uh, urban uh, assets like uh, parks, schools, cultural areas, are we going to build those in ways that, that further and create walls, if not actual walls, in fact walls, psychological walls? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to build it in a way that opens up, that creates linkages, creates connections? So that over time, people that want to interact with the other side can, if they so choose. We don't want to force people together, especially in these volatile areas. We don't want to force integration, but we want to allow for mixing and interaction for those people that do want to do that, that do see that as a viable part of urban living. And and bringing, it would seem to me, 
setting up some kind of urban planning where you bring leaders, responsible leaders, educated leaders from each of the different ethnic groups or each of the various factions together to do some brainstorming, together to plan together. I mean, I think about the the olive branch at the at UCI. Yeah. You know, when I I interviewed some the uh, the professors there, and the intent was to have kids who were descendants of Palestinians and kids who were descendants of Israelis or whatever together to go visit Jerusalem, to go visit uh, and and live together and think together and have class together or do programs together where they start to respect each other as human beings instead of, oh, you're an Israeli or, or you're Jewish oh, or you're an Arab or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where you really start to see the, the human side of each of these people instead of just focusing on the ethnicity or the religion. Yes. Whether it's the olive tree here at ECI, the olive tree initiative, or uh, leaders getting together in some of these uh, cities that I've studied over pragmatic negotiations, um, it's, you, one has to get to know the other. And the only way you can do that is to get beyond the stereotypes. Yes. And what really helps to get beyond the stereotypes is to interact with them. Yes, um, and yeah. to do it in a, in a positive way, to set it up. So that's why I was thinking of in the urban planning is where you set up, even when I do you know, conflict management training, I set up these wonderful interactive exercises that are fun, you know, yes. that, are, that, that take people out of thinking about the problem and put them into thinking about in the interaction, the, the exercise that they're supposed to do. So they just start to just totally dis- dissociate themselves from anything but their humanness. Yeah, that's very helpful um, to have some project to work on. Yeah. Um, as, as you put, or, uh, or we have examples in other cities like the Economic Development Zone that I was talking about. You know, there's a part of dealing with the other that my own experiences and, and the way people talk about it in community relations in places like Northern Ireland is that we have to get out of our defensive ego container. Exactly. As, as long as we are playing a role and we are a label and representing somebody, we're not going to go very far. And encountering the other, it, it is difficult, however we define the other, encountering the other confronts us with a lot of tension, and it takes us out of our comfort zone. Yes. And at that point, sometimes one can freeze up and say, this is enough. I can't do this. Right. Um, it takes you away from feeling sure of your own personal views of the world. Yes. And initially, you can get quite defensive and but, even confused. But um, then there's that awakening. And there you go. Out of, out of a loss of self or loss of ego, the erosion of enough of the ego, comes the beginning of accommodation with the other, a true understanding of the other person. What a perfect way to end. We are out of time. I guess we could go for hours. You are just wonderful, Professor Bowens. We thank you so much for joining us, and we will have you back again and let us know when the next book comes out, all right? I will, and you're very welcome, Mari. Okay, take care. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Join us every Monday morning here at 8.30 a.m. and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. It's about trust. Yeah, yeah. It's about faith. It's about trust. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.